0: Everybody, welcome to Dojo Discussions. I'm J.M. Smith, and I want to talk today about a weird Old Testament passage. And this happens a lot. Those of you that follow the podcast, our weekly Ruth Chris Bible study, you know that we teach through the Old Testament, and particularly the Torah, there's a lot of passages that are just strange or uncomfortable. And every now and then I'll get questions about passages from readers or supporters of the ministry. So here's one I got a while back from a friend, and I wanted to talk about it because I've heard it before. I'm going to read uh, the question that this reader sent to me. They said, here's a tough one. What do you do with Deuteronomy 25, 11, and 12? How can chopping off a woman's hand ever be seen as a gracious gift, a shadow of the substance of Christ, or a moral response to the situation described? You'd expect to read something like this in the Quran, but I've read the Quran and I've never read anything there this brutal or sexist. I asked a rabbi about this once and he couldn't come up with a good answer for me. And most Christian theologians I know are surprised when I show this verse to them. There are a few other verses like this in Deuteronomy that almost ruin the book for me. And I don't want them to. I'm not looking for gotcha verses. I just can't think of any situation where a woman deserves to be treated like this, particularly a woman whose intent is to protect her husband. And if this really is the Word of God, it does indeed cause a problem for me in trying to reconcile this with the God revealed to me by Jesus in the Gospels?" This is a sincere question. Now, I appreciate the question from this reader, who's actually a friend of mine, and it's one that I can sympathize with, because when I read the Old Testament, and even some passages in the New Testament, they're uncomfortable. I mean, we need to be honest that there are passages in the Bible that, especially the first time we encounter them, they, something seems wrong. And especially if we compare them to Jesus, And the message that he gives, this leads to all kinds of stereotypes and ways of approaching Scripture that are confusing, to say the least. And you have some well-known preachers and teachers who say who pit these verses against Jesus. Um, One of them, well-known in Methodist circles, even says that there are three types of verses in Scripture. And he, he says he thinks of them as three buckets that you can put stuff in, stuff that reflects the heart of God, stuff that uh, doesn't really reflect the heart of God, and something, stuff that doesn't at all reflect the heart of God. And you give different weight to different verses. That's a, that's a very condensed version, um, and probably there's more nuancing in how he would present it. But regardless, that's an approach that a lot of people take. They pit the Old Testament against the New Testament. It's nothing new. As far back as uh, 144 AD, Marcion, an early church teacher, had basically the same views and and problems with the Old Testament. And so he pretty much threw it out, the entire Old Testament, as being from a lesser God, from an evil God, and that Jesus was the true representation of the true God who had come to free us as humanity from such an evil God. And there's been different uh, permutations of that throughout history. But it's nothing new, but it does come up when anybody who studies Torah... Anybody who studies what we call the Old Testament, they've likely heard or wrestled with these type of questions before. Now, since few Christians and even fewer skeptics actually read and study the Hebrew Bible, you know, especially the stuff between Exodus 20 and Joshua 1, all the law passages, many are surprised or horrified when they stumble upon these verses. So let me read them to you in three different translations, this particular troublesome passage, Deuteronomy 25 Verses 11 through 12. Here's the King James, which is what most open source online skeptic uh, pages or, or references to this by critics will default to since it's public domain and widely circulated among Christianity. The King James says When men strive together one with another, and the wife of the one draweth near for to deliver her husband out of the hand of him that smiteth him, and putteth forth her hand, and taketh him by the secrets, then thou shalt cut off her hand, thine eye shall not pity her. Now, that's a bit hard to follow, but the New Revised Standard Version, a a newer version of this, which is popular among mainline Christians especially, and more ecumenical, puts it this way, if men get into a fight with one another and the wife of one intervenes to rescue her husband from the grip of his opponent by reaching out and seizing his genitals, you shall cut off her hand, show no pity. And then the NIV, which is popular among conservative evangelical Christians, usually says, puts it this way, If two men are fighting, and the wife of one of them comes to rescue her husband from his assailant, and she reaches out and seizes him by his private parts, you shall cut off her hand, show her no pity. So, this passage, it's it's often, again, overlooked or ignored by Christians. I mean, you don't hear this preached on a Sunday morning, and you probably haven't read it on a Precious Moments greeting card, I imagine. It's readily seized upon by skeptics and people who are hostile to the Abrahamic religions. and uh, some think of, brings to mind some of the new atheists, you know, the Sam Harris or um, Richard Dawkins or the late Christopher Hitchens, they especially like to jump on passages like these to show the barbarity and the evil um, arbitrary sexist, tyrannical laws of God and, and why we should not have anything to do with any of them that the Bible is a evil, twisted, bloodthirsty book written by savages who knew nothing but violence and superstition. And, and you'll even find well-made, well-produced, clever videos on YouTube that, that bring this verse out. There's one that's called Hands Off! exclamation point, And it, it presents this verse and basically says, you know, it's part of our bloodthirsty Bible. So the question that my reader friend was asking: Is what do if we want to believe Scripture? If we want to say it's authoritative, if we want to take the view of the Hebrew Scriptures that Jesus took, which is that they are the Word of God and and that they do provide um, His revelation to humanity, what do we do with these? How could how could these words be inspired in a holy book by loving God? And what relevance do they have for us today? Well. There's a couple of questions packed within that that we have to tease out a little bit. And uh, the first thing that we need to emphasize in approaching this passage, and this applies to all of the hard passages of the Bible, so to speak, but the first thing to emphasize is the Bible is not a book. First and foremost, the Bible is not a book. It's an ancient library spanning nearly two millennia and it's written by at least forty different authors on three different continents in three different languages over the span of the rise and the fall of many civilizations and kingdoms this is crucial for anyone, Christian, skeptic, anyone, to understand despite the cliche claims that being God's word scripture must be plain, clear, and easy for anyone to understand that's simply not true that's not true. The doctrine known as the perspicuity of scripture, which sometimes is that's what people are referring to, states that everything necessary for salvation is plain and easy to understand. Not everything in the Bible is plain and easy to understand. I mean, even Peter in his second letter said that some of what Paul writes is hard to understand. That's Peter. I mean, he's the guy that hung out with Jesus and was in the inner circle. So if Peter says some of the things in Scripture are hard to understand, then that should give us pause before thinking that all we need to do is sit down, pray, and the Holy Spirit will give us the meaning of any verse. A very me centered hermeneutic that we need to get away from and see Scripture for what it is, how God gave it to us, which is an ancient library that tells a grand, large, sweeping narrative that covers many times, many places, many cultures, and speaks into those various time, places, and cultures in ways that are many times culturally bound or at least culturally conditioned. That's not liberalism, that's not throwing the Bible's authority out, that's just basic, solid historic, orthodox, biblical interpretation. So, um, it's don't, don't fall for the I just need the Holy Spirit to tell me what it means and, and anybody can understand it stuff. That's not the case. It's, it's actually an amazing lack of humility to, to show towards the biblical text. Um, We should have this humility that God did inspire pastors, teachers, people that can train, study, can learn the backgrounds, the nuances of the text, the grammar, all of that stuff, and can teach and equip the body, which is what we here at Disciple Dojo at least strive to do. So, don't get me wrong, I do believe all Scripture is, as Paul says, Theopneustos, God breathed, inspired, I believe that. I teach that. I uphold it, including this verse, Deuteronomy 25, 11, and 12, this passage. I'm thoroughly evangelical in this regard. I do believe any discussion of the Bible's authority and inspiration must be nuanced carefully. You know, that's what we do. Those that have taken the Disciple Dojo Course Bible for the rest of us, that's what we do in that course is we we nuance and we carefully unpack what inspiration means. But... This doesn't mean that I believe all Scripture is fully understandable in all its detail and without legitimate difficulty or ambiguity when it comes to interpretation. That's just simply not the case. An honest interpreter is one that admits the degree of difficulty some passages of Scripture impose upon modern readers who are far removed from the culture and historical context in which they were given. I believe this passage in Deuteronomy is a good example of the degree of caution needed when we seek to interpret the Bible. So, that being said, preliminary remarks aside, here's here's how I answered my friend's question. What do I do with Deuteronomy 25, 11, and 12? Well, I said the question is a good one. However, there are a few things worth noting about that particular passage and about Torah law in general. The first thing, first point, is Torah law consists primarily of case law rather than exhaustive legislation. There's a big difference between modern and ancient Near East laws. In modern laws, you know, they're exhaustive. If something's not specifically said to be illegal, then usually it's not illegal. Uh, entire library shelves are filled with laws and, and ordinances and, and all of this, and new ones are constantly being developed, being argued upon based on other ones. Law's a big, I mean, you gotta go to, a, you gotta have a master's in law just to go to handle your average court appearance. There's a reason there's so many lawyers. Our modern law is incredibly expansive and exhaustive. Judges in the ancient Near East, however, weren't given that. They were given an example. They were given case law. And then they were expected to extrapolate wisely from what they were given to render judgment on a case that wasn't specifically spelled out in their laws. So the Torah laws give us types of situations and what the ruling should be in those situations. And then the judges of the ancient Near East were expected to, knowing those laws, knowing the covenant and the nature of God's covenant with Israel, they were expected to reason their way from the nearest applicable law to the situation that presented itself in front of them. That's why judges in ancient Israel were, it was so crucial that they be honest, upright, and wise. that They have wisdom. And that's why it was also such a God's judgment was so severe when they weren't, when they were corrupt, or when they took bribes, or when they were inept in their judgment. So that's the first thing to remember, is these laws are specific. These are example-type laws that communicate principles. And the principles of the laws then can be extrapolated to construct how God viewed His relationship with the people and how they were supposed to live as ancient Near East theocratic covenant members. So that's the first point. And then the second point to remember is that Torah law within the patriarchal society of the ancient Near East was astonishingly protective of women, children, and immigrants. It's, this is something that most people don't realize because most people don't sit down with copies of the Middle Assyrian law or the Code of Hammurabi or any of the other laws from the ancient Near East, places like Babylon, Assyria. Uh, most people aren't familiar with those laws So when we read the Old Testament laws, we immediately compare them to modern society laws, and of course, they look patriarchal, they look backwards, they look um, oppressive. But what you should do, I would suggest, is first look at all the other laws in all the cultures that surrounded Israel at the time, then compare Israel's laws to those cultures And it won't be, what would be more surprising than how similar they are is how radically different they are in many respects. And you'll see time after time how the laws of the Hebrews, in comparison to the laws of the Babylonians or the Egyptians or the Hittites, their laws will actually go out of their way to lift up in status from where they were the people who were considered marginal or outsiders. People who were barely considered human, if human at all women and children and foreigners, immigrants. So um, for a whole treatment on this, I very much recommend readers check out a book by Christopher J. H. Wright. Chris Wright is is probably my favorite living Old Testament scholar. He's absolutely brilliant. I've met him before. He's a wonderful uh, minister, just a great, great great-hearted scholar, passionate, spirit-filled, and he has written Uh, a number of phenomenal books, but one in particular, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God. I cannot recommend that book strongly enough to anyone who seeks to understand the Old Testament, whether to critique it and tear it down, or whether to uh, be inspired and edified by it. Either way, you should read Christopher Wright, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God, to at least get an understanding of the lay of the land. So that's the second point that I want to emphasize The third point is that this passage, Deuteronomy 25, 11, and 12, in particular, is not nearly as clear as some of the various translations would lead people to believe. And This is an important point. Every Bible you read is an English translation of the ancient Hebrew text. So when you come to a passage in the Bible that's hard to understand, the first thing that I would suggest doing is pick up other translations in your language and read how other translations treat it. If you have uh, more time and more desire to understand, then pick up commentaries on that passage in various commentaries out there and look at how the commentators render that passage because that's where you'll usually find the most precise and technical translations. So here is the literal, uh, a very rough wooden literal translation of this passage and I'm keeping the words that are somewhat ambiguous. I'm going I'm to just give you the different meanings those words may have. So you get the feel of, of the, the overall ambiguity of this passage. This Deuteronomy 25, 11, and 12 closely literally says, if men or husbands, it's the same word, are quarreling or striving together, a man and his brother... And the woman or wife of one draws near to snatch or deliver her man or husband from the hand of the one beating, smiting, striking down him. And she stretches out her hand and seizes or makes firm or strengthens his genitals. Then you shall cut off or trim her palm or hollow or basin. She will not be pitied in your eyes." Now, there's a number of terms in this passage that are ambiguous, that are translated one way in some sections and another way in other sections, based on context, and so in this passage, the main thing to note as you walk away is there's some difficulty of what is actually going on here, enough so that that scholars are divided, and have been for years, on the particular meaning of this law. So, firstly, Given that the material that comes just before this passage, uh, we'll talk about that more in a minute, but given the material that comes just before it, it's worth noting that the quarrel or the fight or the argument being discussed is between brothers rather than random strangers. When a man and his brother... Now, his brother could be a generic way of describing his fellow countrymen, but again, given the context of this verse in Deuteronomy, it's very likely that this is talking about a family affair, a family fight. Also, and even more importantly, the word translated hand, this is crucial. The word that's translated hand in verse 12 is not the normal word for hand. The normal Hebrew word for hand in the Old Testament is yad, Y-A-D, yad. This word that says you shall cut off or trim her, it doesn't say hand. It says her cuff, K-A-P-H or K-A-F, her cuff. And that's the word that means palm, like the palm of your hand, or hollow space. And it's used to denote a number of things in the Hebrew Bible, ranging from the hollow of a sling, like where you put a rock in a sling to throw it, to a wash basin, to even a door handle, which the last meaning uh, functions euphemistically in the Song of Songs, explicitly referring to the woman's genital regions. So this word, kaf, is not the word hand. This is whatever it's depicting is not a depiction of what we would think of of somebody just stretching out the hand and then lopping it off with a sword. So in short, the translation of this passage is unclear, at least to a large degree. There's much conjecture about its exact meaning, even among biblical Hebrew scholars. So whenever you hear someone teach regarding this passage, you've got to hold it with loose hands, pun intended. The more knowledgeable a person is about Hebrew translation, the more tentative they'll be when declaring any particular interpretation of this passage as the correct one. And so, conversely, on the flip side, the more dogmatic someone is in teaching on this passage, whether to tear it down or whether to go out of their way to justify it, the less likely it is that they have a firm grasp, pun intended once again, of the original language or the ancient Near East laws in general. But I think we can note a few points that help us make some sense of what's going on in Deuteronomy 25 11 and 12. For starters, right before this passage, as I alluded to earlier, we find a discussion on the concept of leveret marriage. Leveret marriage is the practice in the ancient Near East where the family line of a childless man who dies is is perpetuated, is carried on by his brother. Uh, If a man and a woman married, they have no children and the husband dies, then the woman in the ancient Near East would be left as a a widow with no children and the family name would end. So Leveret marriage in in Scripture and elsewhere in the ancient Near East a widely practiced uh, practice was for the purpose of providing not just a child to the widow that she could raise and that could take care of her in, in her old age but also to perpetuate the family line of the husband that had died. Because Carrying on the line was of paramount importance. Bearing children was seen as one of the highest honors and one of the most important things that a woman could do. It was, it was the one thing that women could do that men could not do. And it was of extreme importance. Today we see it as more utilitarian, we're more used to personal freedom and individuality in many cultures and so we just can't understand this communal emphasis on carrying on your family line that was at the forefront of thinking in the ancient Near East. But that's partly our problem. That's a hurdle we have to overcome when we approach a text written in the ancient Near East, given to people at that time. We have to enter into their world first before trying to pull out or extrapolate any abiding principles that we can bring back into our world. So, the emphasis is on the priority and the utter importance of bearing children to continue the family name and thus to continue enjoying the covenant blessing promise that God had made to Abraham and his offspring, his seed, which was given all the way back in Genesis and was ratified at Mount Sinai. Bearing a child to carry on the family name was of the utmost importance in ancient Israel. There's a major cultural difference. Again, it's a major cultural difference, but we have to understand first that's the starting point. So therefore, It's incredibly likely, I'd say it's almost certain, that the law regarding a wife grabbing the manhood of her brother-in-law during a fight has to do with a potential threat to his ability to father children, as well as his ability to fully participate in Israel's covenant worship. Now, why would I say that? Well, first of all, if you squeeze somebody and crush their testicles, there's a high chance that you may mess with their reproductive ability. That's a given. That's just basic science, and they understood that even in the ancient world. But more specifically, Torah Torah law actually prohibited a man with a, shall we say, damaged package from not only serving as a priest, if he was a Levite, and this is Leviticus 17, verses 17 through 20, but also from even entering into the assembly of the Lord regardless of what tribe he was from, according to Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. Because having damaged, damaged goods, having damaged genitalia, was part of what was seen in Israel as ceremonially unclean, ritually unclean. Things like leprosy, things like touching a dead body, things like having severe deformities, were seen as incompatible with reflecting the holiness of God in the ceremonial realm. Now, that doesn't mean that there was moral judgment that attached itself to those conditions. Jesus made this clear, and even in the Old Testament, God treated people who had these conditions not as morally sinful, but as ritually unclean for the purpose of Israel's outward uh, religious practice. So, if somebody got damaged in this way, it wasn't just a case of an injury that they can walk it off. You know, like when Little League and you get hit with a ball right in the crotch. What does coach say? Hey, walk it off. This is more than that. This is, no, you're jeopardizing the standing of this person, this man, within the covenant community and his ability to participate in the covenant religious life of his people. So it's much more severe than some of the translations would lead us to believe. And it has religious implications as well. And the fact that this command is accompanied by the show no pity phrase at the end, and that's normally elsewhere only reserved for the most severe attacks on covenant faithfulness among Israelites, like murder or idolatry, it tells us that whatever's going on in this case, whatever this law is addressing, it's more than just a woman trying to prevent violence or simply acting in a crass or distasteful manner. This is more than just how my friend framed it in the question that they asked of a woman just trying to defend her husband. Like I said, there are a few views out there. One view that I found intriguing is uh, Lyle Esslinger, the scholar who has written on this, and he, he's put forward the idea that "kaf," that word we that used for, for hand, which is really the word palm, "kaf," in this passage is a euphemism for female genitalia, just like it is metaphorically in the Song of Solomon. And so the law therefore involves a bit of a word play on the concept of hand. Uh, and this is hard to bring out in English, but in Hebrew it's a little clearer if you read Hebrew. He would say, so this is an example of the concept of lex talionis, where the the law of retaliation, you know, the the eye for an eye concept in Torah, where the punishment is to fit the crime. Now, the eye for eye concept, the lex talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, wound for wound, that's quoted by the time of the New Testament, and even today as, as saying licensing vengeance. You know, eye for an eye but that's not at all what that law in its old testament context was given to do. In the old testament, eye for eye was to limit violence, not to sanction it. You see, ancient near east blood feuds were not uncommon. And if somebody took out your eye, then it was expected that you or someone from your family would kill their family member in retaliation. You know, you you knock out my tooth, I kill your son. You knock out my eye, you break my arm, I kill your house, your family, I burn your fields. You, I mean, there were these escalating, you know, Hatfield and McCoy type feuds that went on and on and on. The law of Israel, the eye for eye, tooth for tooth law, was, says specifically, no, you can only inflict what was inflicted upon you. The punishment cannot exceed the crime. So if somebody knocks out your eye, at most you can take their eye. If somebody knocks out your tooth, at most you can take their tooth. That's something that a lot of people don't realize that don't study the Old Testament with much detail. So this concept then, according to Esslinger, the woman grabbing the man and then having her, quote, hand cut off, was an example of this concept, lex talionis, being put into effect. How does that work? Well, if that is the case, if that's what's going on, if Esslinger is right, then this passage is stating that if a woman intentionally tries to damage a man's genitals with her hand, which again would not only risk making him sterile and unable to produce offspring to carry on the family name, but would also risk rendering him unable to even enter the assembly of the Lord due to Deuteronomy's prohibition on it, then the punishment is that her, quote, hand, and this is the euphemism, will suffer the result that she intended to afflict upon him. That is, this would refer to the cutting off or the disfiguring of her genitalia as punishment for attempted disfigurement of his. So she tries to disfigure his penis or scrotum and her labia gets disfigured as a lex talionis response, as a law of retribution. Now, depending on your mindset, I'm guessing that some of you are either cringing or giggling or both because you just heard the words labia, penis, and scrotum on a podcast about the Bible. But again, that's more... of that's the fun of Old Testament, is it really does make you squirm sometimes. But if you want to read more about this proposal, check out Esslinger. His, the, the title of his article is The Case of the Immodest Lady Wrestler in Deuteronomy 25, 11, and 12. And that's from the 1981 edition of Vedum Testamentum, uh, issue 31.3. Now there's another suggestion, similar, a little less cringeworthy than the one above and that's the one that Jerome Walsh, scholar Jerome Walsh, has put forward. He suggests that cough, that term for palm, refers euphemistically not to actual female genitalia but to the groin as a whole like the whole crotch area and but the his his emphasis is that the verb for cut off is to be translated not as cut off like like some flesh being cut off but rather is to be translated as trimmed or shaved. So if this is the case then the law is suggesting that the punishment for publicly shaming a man by attempting to damage his reproductive organ upon which remember the very sign of the covenant was was cut circumcision the the retribution the punishment for that would be the public shaming of the offended wife of his opponent by symbolically desecrating her reproductive organ how does this have anything well the reason is because the shaving of hair in Israel was usually a sign of mourning or humiliation or punishment. Ancient Hebrews were about as far from metrosexual as one can get. Grooming body hair to them was not a mark of beauty as it was in the surrounding cultures like Egypt. Egypt were the ancient Near East metrosexuals. They were smooth, they were they were trimmed, they were waxed, they were sleek. <laughs> you know, they. you look at the pictures of Egyptian art, they, you know, you, you can tell. Whereas their depictions of the Hebrews and others are these dirty hairy uh, you know, desert mountainous tribal people and the Hebrews the ancient Hebrews they considered hair to be a, a beautiful part of God's creation of humanity you know they were to, to shave or to cut the hair to them was disgraceful not a sign of beauty so ancient Near East in Israel Brazilian waxes were probably not gonna catch on and that's something like, as Walsh suggests, that's something like what's going on in this passage. This is a ritual humiliation of someone who had physically humiliated another person in this quarrel or battle that they're engaged in. So if you want to read more on Walsh's argument and see whether you, you find it with merit or not, his argument, his article is titled You Shall Cut Off Her Palm? A re examination of Deuteronomy 25, through 12. That's from 2004. It's in the Journal of Semitic Studies, issue 49.1. Now, personally, I'm not entirely convinced that either of these is what's going on in the passage. There are challenges to both views which raise some questions about their validity. But they are somewhat plausible, and they'd fit into the category of Lex Talionis laws found elsewhere in the Torah. Again, the purpose of Lex Talionis laws was, ironically, to limit the potential retributive violence against the accused. And in an honor and shame culture, attacking a man's genitals was symbolically and literally, I guess, an attack on his very manhood and perhaps on his entire family's standing and well-being. That's something that we just can't wrap our minds around today. So, even if it is the woman's actual palm that was to be cut, or perhaps scarred, or marred in some way in this punishment. In other words, even if Kaf is actually referring to her yad, her hand, then it would still be an example of the lex talionis. In this case, there's an Old Testament scholar, Sandra Jacobs, and she makes the argument that uh, it is indeed a talionis of instrument. It's the, the law is such that the offending limb is what receives the punishment. They're similar Middle Assyrian laws, and they've been documented, and they provide cultural legal analog to this type of biblical law. So you can read uh, Sandra Jacobs, you can read her article and her argument in um, her, yeah, the article is called Instrumental Talion in Deuteronomic Law, and that's from the Journal for Ancient Near Eastern and Biblical Law, issue 16, and that's 2010. But the point is that. If attacking the genitals of a man in the ancient world represented an assault on his procreative abilities, his standing in the community, his family name, and his very manhood, in other words, if that's what that symbolized to their culture, then it's not hard to imagine that such an action would be met with vindictive violence by the man, his wife, or other family members in such an honor and shame culture and that could then potentially trigger a long-lasting blood feud. This all this sounds weird and foreign to us, but in the world of the ancient near east, they would think it's weird or foreign to not react in such a manner. You attacked my husband's manhood during this argument that you had no business stepping into? Well, I'm going to attack you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to bring shame upon your house. I'm going to th- this was this would just have been common thinking. So, by giving this example of case law in Deuteronomy Moses is intending to limit the retribution that can be enacted upon the woman while at the same time though recognizing and upholding the high value of sexuality, family, and covenant which are all symbolized in various ways in the reproductive organs of men and women. Now, we find this utterly bizarre and we even giggle at it when we read it. If you don't believe me, try teaching this to a group of middle schoolers in Sunday school but this is a big reason why things like circumcision were established the way they were in the ancient world and then subsequently redefined and reinvested with new meaning by God among his covenant people circumcision was a ritual that was practiced widely outside of Israel but it was done as a rite of manhood, a rite of passage, it was done on young men or young boys as they entered into manhood God in Torah commands Abraham to note now circumcision for you Is going to be a mark of your belonging within the covenant community and it's not going to be done as a rite of manhood it's going to be done before the child is even aware and able to choose to or not to binding together the generations in covenant community faithfulness taking a sign a symbol from the ancient world and investing it with new meaning he did it before with the rainbow in the Noah account a rainbow in the sky above a village hung above the gate that of a city was a sign that the conquering king, the king who had overthrown it, the warlord that had overthrown it, was coming not in anger and in violence, but was coming in peace. It was going to be a benevolent ruler. Well, God takes that symbol in Genesis and ramps it up to cosmic degree, communicating through the Noah event that the God who had destroyed the earth with the flood to wipe away all of humanity's fallenness and, and pollution of the earth was no longer an angry, vengeful God who was still bent on attacking them but rather was seeking to rule but to rule benevolently, to rule in peace. And that's a whole other story for a whole other podcast. But at the end of the day, what we need to admit is that this passage, Deuteronomy 25, 11, and 12, this passage is admittedly unclear and perhaps bizarre to Christian readers two millennia removed from its original audience. And in modern societies where corporal punishment is more and more becoming a forgotten relic of the judicial past, it can indeed strike us as cruel and unusual punishment. But this was one of the ways in which God entered into the culture of his people in their own historical setting and chose to deal with them as a theocratic covenant nation in the ancient Near East. Their purpose was to live among the pagan cultures surrounding them in such a way that God's distinctive relationship with them would draw watching Gentiles back to him. Therefore, it shouldn't be a surprise, and it shouldn't be seen as an obstacle of faith, that God would utilize certain forms of social and legal practices from those cultures, albeit in a transformed or significantly altered manner, in order to communicate to humanity throughout the various stages of history. Now, as for how Christians today are to apply this passage, well, that'd be beyond the scope of this podcast, right now at least. I do discuss some basic approaches in some of the videos on the Disciple Dojo Video Archive. So if you hop on jamsmith.org, you can go to the videos such as Do Christians Keep the Ten Commandments? And you can click on that and see an explanation of how we are to approach these seemingly arcane laws in general. Or you can check out on this podcast, the Disciple Dojo in India series, where I teach a workshop for Indian village pastors on how to preach, teach, and interpret the Old Testament laws. Both of those are freely available and I recommend that you go check them out. But what we need to keep in mind, Deuteronomy 25, 11, and 12 is part of Torah and according to Jesus and Paul and the author of Hebrews and taking into account the shift from Sinai to Golgotha from the Mosaic Covenant to the Messianic Covenant, it still remains God's inspired scripture for His people. So we can't throw it into a bucket Of our choosing that we created because it makes us uncomfortable or we don't like it we can't look at it and say this doesn't sound like Jesus so it can't be from God because Jesus himself held up the law of Moses Torah as the words of God for God's people in covenant with God under the Sinai Covenant We look back on that through the lens of Jesus, through the cross of Christ, as people who have been brought into the New Covenant, and we can see certain principles, certain concepts, uh, certain characterizations of of how justice or how punishment or how um, treatment of offenders should look overall in an in ancient Near East theocratic society, and then find ways through the leading of the Holy Spirit, through the communal body of Christ together, find ways in which we can carry forth that spirit, those concepts, those ideals, into our own settings all over the world today with various laws and customs and practices, without simply trying to impose biblical laws in a one-to-one manner on our modern settings, because that won't do So I hope this has provided some food for thought. It's always a fun topic to uh, talk about the famous passage of the woman having her hand cut off for grabbing a guy's junk um, and seeing that that's actually not a fair representation of what's going on and that there's more work and more study to be done. So take this passage, do with it what you will, look at the articles that I've mentioned, and um, give it some thought. Don't just settle for the internet skeptics or the pious dismissals. Uh, Push, seek, grow, strive. That's what we're all about here at Disciple Dojo. Thanks for listening.